working uh, with Larry, and so I would encourage you to turn there. I have one quick announcement uh, that I need to give to you first. Maybe. There you go. Um, lot, first of all, let me encourage this hour. You guys have done amazing. There's one, two classes, or one class, two classes at 9 o'clock, two classes at 9 o'clock that need some help, but not much. So thank you. Thank you for signing up for the children's program, but also those two people are sitting somewhere in here. So pray about that. And uh, you got rebuked by your senior pastor uh, last week, so that's all I'm going to say about that. But please pray about that and think about how to love those kiddos. Let's turn to uh, Matthew 22. Um, Let me me ask you this question before we get started with the, the passage. Have you ever struggled with what it means to really obey and follow God? Have you ever struck out on an attempt to live in a pleasing way to God by passionately keeping his commands. When I, was, um, first, when I first became a Christian in college, uh, that's exactly what I did. And I went after it with the same kind of intensity and the same way that I trained as a college athlete with discipline, passion, hard work, uh, ready to outwork anybody else. I was ready to go. And it left me miserable and riddled with guilt because no matter how hard I tried no matter what I did I never matched up and that about that time God brought a brother into my life and he gently sat me down and reminded me of God's love and that God's grace didn't depend on what I was doing my effort, my performance, but on God's forgiveness and the work of Christ on the cross and not mine. You see, I had forgotten the basic truth of the gospel. I can't make it happen. And so, like any other young man, uh, with... (laughs) with this new sense of freedom and grace, what did I do? I went to the polar extreme, right? And I just lived free because I'm free in grace. And I had another brother, by God's grace, come beside me and put his arm around me and say, Jeff, for one, you do need to live by what God has told you is the best way to live and by his commands. It's a way to worship him. But you also need to think about other people um, and how you're affecting them. Because the way you're living isn't loving your brother. Because your brother stumbles with what you're doing. So, just like any other time in your life when you have those moments where somebody calls you out and you have to do some self-examination and kind of think through that. And I just realized... I'm living a life that of spiritual bipolar disorder. I'm going from one extreme to the next and over here. And every year I'm trying to be better, but then I get tired and I get frustrated and I get convicted and I feel guilty and I've got all that lumped on me and then I just go to the other extreme. 
neither of which were promoting a life that honored God or the gospel. And my guess is today that a lot of people in this room have had similar experiences. You may not be as crazy as me. You may not fluctuate from one polar extreme to the other, but you probably, probably suffer from your tendency to flow one way or the other toward legalism or a license. And so today, as we look at Matthew 22, 34 through 46, let me ask you uh, to do something with me. Let's pray before we read, because this passage is so well known to us. We know this so well. You're going to have a tendency to, we're going to read this and you're going to go, oop, shut, shut down, I'm going to nap, and then I'll be ready for lunch. Okay, please don't. Because when Jesus says this, when he's teaching and when he is uh, engaging the Pharisees, he's saying some stunningly crazy stuff. And if you approach it like a Pharisee and think, heard it before, know it, you're going to be a Pharisee. So don't do that. So let's pray and then let's dive into the word of God. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your revelation, your word that brings us truth, brings us light, and frees us from our sins, helps us to understand the gospel, helps us understand you, helps us understand ourselves. God, only in the light of your truth can we know you and be rightly known. So as we read and as we think and as we walk through this passage, God, change us. Transform us from one degree of glory to the next as we behold your face. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. So starting in chapter 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands, commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The context of what's going on is... is, is Needs to, be, needs to be thought about for just a minute. One thing is we've watched as the Sadducees and the Pharisees have come to Jesus and they've questioned him. And they're continually trying to trip him up and to feel him out. And to, you know, you'd think by now they would figure out that they're not going to trap him. But within this dynamic, it's pretty funny. There's a rivalry between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And if you want a really good grip of it, if you go to Acts 23, when Paul's on trial at the Sanhedrin, what happens is he, just, he proclaims that he is a Pharisee and he believes in the resurrection and that is his hope. And there is a brawl that breaks out, like a crazy riot, so much so that the soldiers had to come and grab Paul and take him out of there for fear of his life. That's how militantly opposed these two groups were of each other. So when the Pharisees heard that the Sadducees had been taken care of and silenced by Jesus, they're like, <laughs> all right. It's just like our political climate today. You know, the Democrats lose some ground, Republicans 
vice versa. Whoever loses ground, the other group steps in and goes, we'll take it from here. Okay, so that's what's happening. But in the context of this, it's almost like a, when somebody's defending their PhD, their dissertation, they have these oral exams and they sit in a room with these really learned folks, okay? And, or a doc, um, when we uh, bring somebody in to be ordained, the elders sit in a room and they ask a bunch of questions. Well, at this stage of the game, Jesus has answered all the questions. So he's doing really well, okay? So what happens when a PhD student or a, or a, um, a candidate for ordination is doing really well is everybody looks to the expert in the room, right? And he pulls out the question of all questions. Probably one he can't even answer himself. But he's not the one being the question being asked. So he doesn't have to answer it. But, you know, kind of like the... Mark Lederbach or Sam Williams of our elder team. You know, we always kind of look to them, you know, if we're not stumping anybody and just say, you know, just ask a question. And then it's all downhill from there for the guy. But in that light, that's what's going on. So this expert steps forward and he says, what? What is the question that he asks? It's very simple. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Sounds pretty simple. Sounds pretty clear. It wasn't a unique question. Because most of the rabbis and the teachers of the day tried to summarize. There were 613 commandments. Which one am I supposed to do? Right? Which one's like high priority? Which one's low priority? You do it every day. You look through the Bible and you go, hmm, high priority, low priority. Do I really need to? Or you might call Larry and say, hey, Larry, uh, like, this sounds pretty cut and dry. Should I, do I need to do that? Really? That sounds kind of extreme. All that? Well, that's what's going on. And Jesus does something very simple. Without blinking an eye, without thinking about it for a minute, he just quotes Deuteronomy 6.5. Now, the crazy thing about that it's what Jesus is saying through, through that whole answer. He's basically looking at them and he's saying, you ought to know this. You do know this. Because you quote Deuteronomy 6.5 every morning and every evening. It's what you do. You're a great Pharisee. You're a keeper of the law. You ought to know. Not only do you quote it day and night, you put it on your doorpost and you bind it to your body. So you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great commandment. Love. The whole thing wrapped up in one little commandment. Love God wholeheartedly and it transcends all of life and all of relationships they should have known better but what happens often to you and I what happens to our hearts when we recite the same things or sing the same hymns or pray the same prayers what happens We begin to practically live like we don't believe that. 
It doesn't really connect to who we are and what we do. He's drawing them back and saying, you can't do lip service. You must worship. You must adore. You must have affection for God. Jesus points this out, and he says it in this way. You should love the Lord your God with everything you are and everything you have. Love, love God, some ambiguous thing, some ambiguous being? No. Love the Lord your God. You see, He commands them to love the God that has already loved them. He commands them to love a personal God who has shown his love for his people. The story of redemption is a love story. He has delivered them from captivity. He has made a covenant with them. He has loved them. He has pursued them in their sin. He has performed miracle after miracle after miracle in their life. He's not calling them to some abstract thing. He's calling them to a personal relationship with the one who loves them more than anything. The New Testament has few references for our love for God, but it is littered with references toward God's love for us. And I think that just gives more and more um, heedance to what Jesus is saying. The chief privilege, chief responsibility in our lives as God's people is to adore him, is to love him. You want something to put on your to-do list. A lot of you guys are task-oriented people. Okay, so you have a task list. You already have one built for tomorrow. So when you get up, you know what you're doing and you check them off one by one. You're great disciplinarians and that's a beautiful thing, but here's the catch. There's only one thing that should be on that to-do list. As far as Jesus goes, there's one thing that goes on your to-do list tomorrow, and that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then however that takes shape in your life is okay, but that's the one thing. Check. All the others are meaningless without the one thing. Jesus crushes the Pharisees' battle with rule-keeping and our legalism, that far pole of we're going to do everything God commands us to do and we're going to do it right and we're going to hold to that and we're going to hold everybody else around us to that. And he directs us beyond that and he says, you guess what? That pole of legalism, it's not far enough. It's not far enough. It's not good enough. Let's press past that. Let's press past law keeping and let's go to loving Let's pass way past your to-do list. And let's talk about the motivation for that to-do list. Let's talk about how, what empowers you to get that done. Let's talk about love. Let's talk about the love of your God. You know, and just, just like Jesus, when the Pharisees think that they're controlling the conversation... They're not. It's just like us. We think we're controlling our lives, don't we? I'm sorry to say, you're not. 
You, you have a will, and it needs to be engaged in what God does. But ultimately, you know, we buried my 93-year-old grandma during Christmas. And one thing I walked away with was this. Even my saintly grandma can't live forever. Even a Nebraska farm girl that's the strongest physical woman I've ever known in my entire life, spiritually and physically, can't live forever. There are just some things we're just not in control of. And Jesus is showing them they're not in control of this conversation. Because they ask him, what is the great commandment? The great commandment, right? And he goes on. What's he say? And the second is like it. They're not in control. He is. He's letting them know your question's too narrow. Let's, let's bump this out a little bit. The second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Just as your love for God and your relationship with God is central, so is your love for, and relationship for other people who are created in his image. John would say in 1 John, you can't love God and hate your brother. How do you hate what's created in the image of what you say you love? Jesus says these commands aren't interchangeable either. Okay, so you can't say that the love of people is more important than the love of God. They're not interchangeable. You can't switch them around. Because the love of God can't be second. But equally important is the love of other people. And that's what keeps love pure. Our love for people flows from our love of God. And our love of God gives power and direction to the, for our love of people. So let's look at it this way. So the command to not murder in Exodus 20.13 and the command not to steal in Exodus 20.15 are not just to refrain from evil. When you push them through the command to love, they imply that we should look out for the best interests of our neighbor. We shouldn't do anything to take away, but we should enhance the life of our neighbors. This love is radically pushing us past the other extreme pole of kind of narcissistic freedom and to a sacrificial love. Jesus is quoting here Leviticus 19.18. And it should be familiar to us. We, were, we worked through Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, what does Jesus do with the idea of neighbor? He defines it for us, doesn't he? He defines it in a way that opens it up to everyone that you come in contact with is your neighbor. Not just this little microcosm of the world that you call your little niche or your little people group, your little family. No, no, no. Your neighbor's much broader than that. But here's, here's the problem that you and I have. It comes in the end of this passage, this verse. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, love of self is not the third command. 
though we would love it to be, right? We would love it to be. Love of self is not the third command in Jesus' list. And we need to talk about that for a minute because we live in a world that is addicted to self-love and self-esteem and this is no anthem to their, their importance or their need uh, or our need to learn to love ourselves more so that we can love others. Listen, our flesh is wickedly self-centered and self-consumed and self-aware. Let's just do a little test. Let's just figure that out. What consumes most of your concerns in a week's time? What concerns frame and cause most of your anxiety and fear? Is it your concern for others or your concern for you? Because if I'm truthfully just dead up honest with you guys, here's my concerns that I wrote down. My house, my car, my family, my checkbook, my iPhone, my, 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 my. The cares of this world are killing us because we keep ourselves in the center of it. So it's all about how it affects me. It's all about my, 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 my. I cannot love God with all that I am and sacrificially love others when I am consumed with me. And that is the point that this text assumes. It assumes that human, normal human activity, the love of oneself, generally takes precedence over the love for God and love for other people. Listen, Who's teaching you this? Jesus, don't you think he knows your heart better than you do? Don't you think that he knows your thoughts and the things you never let loose? You're not even telling your wife or your kid. Like, you're not telling anybody what you just thought of. He knows. And he is like a good doctor. One who loves you more than anything, putting his arm around you like a brother to come and show grace to you and say, no. No. You want to display the love of God? Then love others as you love yourself. Your worship and ministry of love are to be focused outside of yourself. See, for Jesus, love is the core of life. It's the center. It's everything. Scott McKnight defines such love as this. Listen to this. This is really, really good. Unconditional regard. Love is unconditional regard for a person that prompts and shapes behaviors in order to help that person to become what God desires. Love when working properly is both emotion and will, affection and action. Listen to it again. Love like this is unconditional regard for a person 
that prompts and shapes behaviors in order to help that person to become what God desires. Is that the way you think about other people? Do you think about your life connecting to somebody else's so that in some way, somehow, the little time on this earth that you get to spend with this person, and in this church it's usually not very long, one to three years, you get that time period with people before they move on and go someplace else. There's only a few of us who have been here for a long time. And so that's, but what about that? That's a great opportunity for you to pour into somebody else that then goes and loves somebody else because you poured into them. What about these guys in my college days that came and put their arm around me and go, Jeff, whoa, whoa, no, 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 no. Where are those people in this church that are walking up beside people in their small group and going, I love you, bro, but you're way off track. You're driving your family crazy, stop. What about the people that you build relationships with and you know you're not getting anything back? You know when you sow seed into those people's lives, there ain't nothing coming back toward you. It's take, 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 take from you. And believe me, as a pastor, I get it. I absolutely get it. But how do I show love to people? How do I take a basin and a towel and wash dirty feet? How do you pour your life into other people and show them that you love them? I got an encouraging note this week from Drew Tucker in Tampa who said, Monday we're starting our new internship um, with all kinds of interns coming. Thank you for pouring and sharing your life with me so that I could do it for these guys. That's it. That's it. Jesus is calling us to throw ourselves, all of us, every bit of us, heart, soul, and mind, into other people, encounters and relationships, to look out for our neighbor's good, to sacrifice, to care for them, to even put ourselves at risk for their good, to love them the way that you've been loved by God. Because the question really does kind of hinge on this. Did God hold anything back from you? And his love for you 1 John 4, 10 and 11 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means that he took the wrath of God, all of it, upon himself on the cross in your stead. The punishment that was due you, he took for you. Every last drop of it. Past, present, future sins. Why? And John says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Give it all. Risk it all. You know, some of us have been blessed financially and we're able to write a check to the church and it really doesn't 
hurt us much. Some of us, it hurts a lot. But here's what I'm saying. It's more than money. Money's always a good determinant of where your heart is. But here's another thing. What about your time? How are you sacrificing time and energy to love other people? Particularly those who are unlovely. And here's the kicker. God's love has been poured out on us. We might love the Lord our God and love other people with the same love. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says something in verse 40 that's crazy. It's absolutely stunning. And it knocked the Pharisees on their heels, I'm sure, and it should you. Because if you can just write off these two commandments, you don't understand verse 40. Because in verse 40 he says, on these two commandments depend what? All the law and all the prophets. What the crazy thing is, he's saying everything that the Bible says depends on these two. When was the last time you picked up the Bible and read from Genesis to Revelation? There's a lot in there. There's a lot of stuff in there, and Jesus is saying all of it depends or hangs on these two things, that you love God with all your heart and that you love others, your neighbor as yourself. Crazy. Don't just flash through it because you've read it for 40 years. This is stunning. This is a call to love. To love God. To love all people. This is the meaning behind the whole story. Now, here's the thing. When we look at that, what do we, what do we naturally think? That's impossible. How do you love God with everything you are? And love other people in the way that I love myself. Now look, if I'm hungry, I'm finding food. I'm taking care of myself, right? That's a pretty big deal. We simply can't love God all the time in this kind of way. And we're not capable of sacrificially loving all people all the time. Listen, when my alarm clock went off at 5.30 this morning, I did not love y'all. I was in a bad mood. I'm like, 5.30 Sunday. I wasn't, now I quickly got there, but my initial reaction in the flesh was not good. And if you drive a car on the interstate or live in a neighborhood or a member of this church, you're not going to love people and love God perfectly all the time. But you're called to. So what do you do? The standard is just so high. How do you measure up? How do you deal with your guilt when you don't do that? 
How do you deal with the condemnation of your own conscience when you don't live up to these things? Jesus says, love me. Love the Lord your God. Because why? Because he's the only one who ever lived a perfect life, loved God perfectly, and loved you perfectly. He's the only one who has lived out the two great commandments perfectly. And the beauty of the whole gospel is this. That he loved you perfectly and he saved you from your sin when you were unable to save yourself. When was the last time you went back and read Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but he who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and what? Responsive reading. And what? Gave himself for me. He not only perfectly loved us, he saves us when we're can't save ourselves. We're in, we're trapped. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us. In that, while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. Listen, you have been liberated in him. Commands are not supposed to lump guilt on you. Our failures are not supposed to lump guilt on us. God has provided a way for us and he asks us to confess our sin and to seek forgiveness and why does God ask us to ask him for his forgiveness why does he point us in that direction because he wants us once again to be filled with the fullness of his love for us he wants us once again in this cycle of living the Christian life When we stumble, when we stumble, we have the freedom to fail. Do you hear me? God's grace is sufficient. You have the freedom to fail. Therefore, you can risk it all. And you're gonna and just know you're gonna fumble and bumble through this life. It's a given. You're not Jesus, I'm not Jesus, we're not perfect, we're not glorified yet in this life. So we're going to bumble and fumble through. But God has provided a way for you to have freedom in your failure. You confess your sin to him and he is what? He's faithful to forgive. Unbelievable. I hope you're gripped by that. I hope you understand that it's not really, the Christian life is really not about fulfilling the great commandments. It's about the great commandment being fulfilled 
in us and through us. One day, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. One day, you will love others as you love yourself. But you won't do it perfectly today. But guess what? That's what Jesus has called us to. That's what he's empowered us to do. That's what he has saved us for. Bruner writes this. This is a beautiful quote. Jesus' command to love teaches us to major on two things with all that we are. And then just see where that takes us each day. What if we lived that way? Would we not be liberated? Maybe experience a little more of the joy of our salvation rather than the condemnation of all the things we're not doing or getting done? It's a beautiful thing. And all of that hinges on how we answer the next question that Jesus um, puts forth. So here's the thing. Okay, so Pharisees are done. Not asking any more questions. Pretty silent at this stage. But they're still gathered. So Jesus has a captive audience. And he says, he takes the offensive. And he asks them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Who is, whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And then he, he says something interesting. He says, how is it that then David, in the spirit, calls him Lord? He's quoting Psalm 110. And the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Mm. The big gulp at the end, the Pharisees gulping, going, mm. what in the world? Jesus goes on the offensive because how we answer this question really determines everything else. It really does. And the, and the Pharisees actually answer the question correctly. They say the son of David, which is true. They are experts in the law. They've studied this. They know. He's the son of David. He's coming in the line of King David. Exactly. But not adequate. See, the question illuminates the greatest truth of them all in this passage, and that is the identity of Christ. Don't you think the Pharisees were excited because they knew the answer to this one? This one, I got this one. This is like writing your name on the SAT, okay? You at least get that one right, hopefully. But what happened? They're not driving this conversation. They're not the ones pushing forward. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, is standing before them. And he is showing them that he transcends this earthly office of the son of David. And embraces his heavenly role as the son of God. The one who was to come and take away the sins of the world. The one that would sit at the right hand of God. The one that would crush his enemies under his foot. This is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And although they don't see it right now, that's what Jesus is proclaiming. You see, 
He's holding up to us. I'm the one to be loved. I'm the one who has come to save my people from their sins. Not just be some political army leader, some conqueror. So, could it be that your experience of freedom and joy is because you have an inadequate answer to the same question? What you think about the Christ? What you really think? I'm not saying do you have the great Christological passages of the New Testament memorized and you can lay them out there and you can even teach a class down this road at the seminary on it. No, I'm not saying that. What do you really think? What do you really believe? What do you really know to be true in your heart? If somebody asked you that question, what would be your response? Would it be, he is the lover of my soul. He is the one who loved me so much he left heaven to come here. He lived a sinless life. He died a brutal death on the cross for my sake and my sin. He loves me more than I understand. He is my king, my ruler, my good and mighty king. And I gladly bow to him because he loves me more than anyone else. You see, the writer of Hebrews would tell us this. You want to know more joy? Hebrews 12, 2. Then fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Unbelievable. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For you, for me. So Jesus stands before you today. And he's asking one thing. What do you think of me? He's not lumping more guilt on you about how you actually love God. Do you love him with all of those things? Do you love other people? His command is simply calling you to do what he has already done for you. He has loved God perfectly. He has loved us perfectly. He has done all of that. He's asking you to repent of the things, the inadequate views of himself, the inadequate things that you're pouring yourself into, and he's saying, love God. And let that love transcend you to other people. The only question is, will you repent? Will you confess today? Will you lay things at the altar? You could walk forward. You can do that. Some of you have never done this. Some of you love yourself more than anything in this world. And you have never crucified that. You've never put that to death. You've never said, God, I need you, Jesus, to kill this for me and be the one center of my life. 
today's the day. Today could be the day. A lot of us just need to be reoriented and we need to repent and confess that we get easily distracted. He has come to set you free from your sin, to love you, that you might love and live. But he has also come to rule over your life as the Lord your God, the good and mighty King. So as we pray and as we respond to the word, if you want to talk to somebody or pray with somebody about that, I would love to. I'll be down here. There'll be other um, elders and uh, ministry leaders down here. Or if you just want to come and deal with the Lord, that's, that's good. 